0: so that's a good song it's got nice words a little melody a nice little beat how many of you have in your mind a great thing God has actually done it wasn't just Christian karaoke you weren't just singing along because it kind of had a nice beat a little, nice little tune guy wrote some words how many of you have a testimony in your own heart your own mind if I were to come and ask you you could say let me tell you about this moment this time this place God did a great thing for me you got that? Yeah. Yeah. God has done great things. Here's the cool thing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means if he did great things here, he's going to do great things here because he doesn't change. So it's not like, whoa, man, he had a really good day, pulled off a couple of exciting things, got a little tired after that, and hasn't done much since. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he did great things here, he's going to do great things here which means you can rejoice over what he did and you can declare by faith that you trust that he's going to do it again over here, right? That's what this morning's about, okay? Let's put our attention there. Father, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. I thank you that you are the one from whom all good things come, the God of lights, the source of every good gift. So we thank you for who you are, We thank you for what you've done in the past, and we're rejoicing that you have done great things. But we are also, with anticipation, looking forward to believe that you are going to do great things tomorrow, like you did yesterday. So, God, this morning we celebrate you, who you are, and all you've done, and all we believe you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Let's worship together.
1: to read from Isaiah 40. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain? And why do you say, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Oh, Lord, my. singing this that God is good because we're singing about that and I'm thinking how right now we're living in a world that doesn't seem so good but that we can come here this morning and we can proclaim that God is good that we can shout, that we still have the freedom to, you guys. I know it's so easy to look at all the stuff that's happening and be pessimistic and and negative, but we still have the freedom to come together, even in masks, and proclaim the goodness of God. He is good. He is faithful. He is here. He has not, his arm has not grown short we can come together and we can look the enemy in the face and say come on my God's good and I'm feeling a fight in me this morning so we're going to sing this song one more time so let's just start from the the intro thingy because I like it
0: I I know God is good. You know how I know that? Jack was clapping. Yeah. 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 He's like the level of life. You know, he just he's just right there. You know, see you always know where level is. That's where Jack is. He was clapping. So God's good. Just it's getting out of control. It's getting wild and crazy in here. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. You people are losing it because Jack was clapping. So God, we're just we're just so grateful that you are good. <laughs> Not, not, that you, not that you just do good things once in a while or that you say good things once in a while or that you have a good day once in a while. I thank you that you are good. Everything else is evaluated in terms of you to decide whether they're good or not. You are good. So it means what you do is good and what you say is good and how you treat us is good and what you provide is good. You are good. And so God, we give you thanks for that. That as Casey said, in all of the crazy of this world, there is this consistent God who is good. And we say thanks for that. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, safely from a distance, look across the room, wave at somebody and tell them God's good.
2: Morning. I'm Carissa. I am so glad that you're with us this morning. If you take a moment to look around, you'll find in the pews, there is a connect card. You can also access our connect card online at the URL on screen. This connect card is your ticket to getting connected at Parkway. We have been talking about being connected here at Parkway for quite a few weeks now, and this connect card is your ticket to making that happen. With this connect card, whether you're new or someone who's been coming to Parkway for a while you can use it to make sure we have all of your current contact information if we know how to get in contact with you we can do so in any situation the connect card is also a way that you can get more information about various ministries here at Parkway so if you want to get your kids connected in youth or in the kids ministry if you want to get connected with the women's group or maybe you want to get connected as a family with a care group this connect card is going to be your ticket to doing that the other thing you can use the connect card for is to let us know about any prayer requests or let us know about what God's doing in your life. We would love to come alongside you in prayer and to celebrate all the things that God is doing in your life. Another way that you can stay connected at Parkway is by downloading our app. On our app, we have ways for you to watch our sermon both on demand and live. You can also access a current list of everything that's happening here at Parkway through our event list. The other things that you can do with our app is you can access our Sunday bulletin where you can take notes and you can email them to ourselves. There's also a full Bible available on our app. You can also get connected by signing up for our email list. We don't send out stuff regularly, but we do send out stuff when we have something we need to let you know about. You can also stay connected with us online on both Facebook and Instagram. It's October, which means pumpkin spice season. It also means Pastor Appreciation Month. So if you would like to give a special offering for the Pastor Appreciation Fund, you can do that by writing Pastor Appreciation on the offering envelope on the memo line of your check. Or if you give online, there's an option on the pull-down menu to select Pastor Appreciation. We would also love to have any words of encouragement that you would like to give to the pastors. You can submit that a bunch of different ways. You can write a letter and you can mail it in the old-fashioned way to our address, which I've posted on the screen. You can also send an email to team at parkwaycc.com and make sure you put pastor appreciation in the subject line and we'll make sure that those get to the pastors. Hi, have you filled out your connect card yet? I'm doing mine right now. You should too. And if you're filling out the paper one, the ushers will collect those with the tithes and offerings as you're exiting out at the end of service. So get it done. Now's a great time to get connected at Parkway.
0: So you should be really happy that you were in this service because the video didn't work in first service. So you now know what's going on. You have privileged insider information that all of those nine o'clock people don't have. So, well, if you know any of them, maybe you should tell them what's going on, right? It would only be the nice thing to do, would be to let them know what's going on. So, hey, I have a special privilege this morning to introduce to you the Agnew family. So they are going to head up here and we are going to get a chance to meet them. As I mentioned in first service, they just went down to the car dealership and said, what's the biggest car you have? We'll fill it. That's why there's seven of them. There's a boatload, well, at least a van full, (laughs) minivan full, something, I don't know. Anyway, this is Micah and Michelle. And in just a moment, Mike is going to introduce to you all the kids. He knows them better than I do. I'm, I'm still getting them all straight and figuring out which name goes with which one. So we're, we're working our way through all of that, and getting to know this big group of people. They're most, most recently are from uh, Northeast Oregon. They were up in Enterprise. And uh, said, God, I don't want to do another winter in Enterprise. And God delivered them and moved them to Grants Pass where they will not freeze to death this winter. They are our newest people on staff. So would you just help me to welcome them? We just want to say that we're glad they're here. We appreciate them being a part of our family and, and sharing with us. Uh, Micah is going to be uh, providing some pastoral leadership in the area of of our our worship and our kind of our Sunday morning experience and is going to be taking the lead with our development of new care groups and helping you connect in community. We've been talking about that for the last several weeks and uh, actually we will for a couple of more. But uh, anyway, he's going to be heading up that initiative along with some other odd jobs along the way. But uh, those are going to be kind of the big things that he's doing. Uh, So Micah, maybe if you could introduce to us the, the rest of this crew.
3: This is uh, this is the crew. Um, I said the first service uh, we were planning on two and a half kids, and God's like, oh, <laughs> I got a better plan. And so uh, my wife Michelle and I have been married 16 years, and we've been blessed with these five. Uh, so we have Gabriel on the end, who's oldest, and then Shiloh, oldest girl, Lily in blue, middleest girl, <laughs> Jamin, my right hand man. And Haven, who can't make it through two services on a Sunday. <laughs> but it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. We're so excited at what God has for us. And uh, seasons change. Uh, as we all got to see even this morning, uh, that was neat to see the fog for the first time being Grant's past residence. I guess it's kind of common around here. <laughs> so that'll take me some getting used to. Uh, but, you know, in those seasons, God is always good, as we were singing. And so we're really excited to be a part of this season at Parkway. Great. I'm
1: taking the mic. Look out. <laughs> so one of the things that we experienced while we were in Enterprise is um, what it means to be the family of God. Um and Pastor Dennis is going to talk about it later, which I think is just so fitting. But um, but just, uh, we learned in our little town that was very much like Mayberry, if you're familiar with the Andy Griffith show, um, that um, we ended up with family that were friends. I love that new term, framily, um, because they chose to be. And we learned that there's actually no bond stronger than being in the family of God. And so... We are so thankful for you guys welcoming us into your family, and are really eager to see what the Lord's going to do with that.
0: Dave. I, I would like to, uh, yeah, I'd like to invite uh, elders and spouses uh, to to come, and we want to pray for uh, the Agnews and commission them uh, to this ministry. So we are um, we're trying we're trying to stay. Uh, Holy Spirit close and COVID distance. Uh, how, however that works, I don't know. Uh, but scripture talks about laying on of hands and, and prayer and ministry for for people. Um, and so we want the, the Holy Spirit to, to help them. We want to, the Holy Spirit not only to help them in terms of ministry and supernatural things, but also just uh, they're in the middle of trying to get a house. And some of you that have gone through that whole process know that you got offers and counter offers and inspections and loans and a gazillion pages you have to sign. And I mean, there's just a lot of stuff, right? So we, we want the practical things to work. We want the supernatural things to work. And so we're going to pray in that way. Father, we thank you for the Agnew family. We thank you for bringing them here. We thank you, Father, for who you have made them to be. That they're, here, are, here are seven representations of you made in your image, designed by you, created by you, made special by you, who have gifts and talents, skills and abilities to enter into ministry with in terms of the family of God and to be ministered to by the rest of the family. And so, Father, we thank you for bringing them here. We do ask for just those practical things, that ability to somehow get out of temporary housing, to get into that which is permanent, to be able to say, hey, our our family lives here. I pray that you would give them that ability to to find roots and to find a sense of of permanency, a, a place of belonging, just physically to say this is our space. And so, God, we pray for that whole process. But we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and do supernatural things. We pray, dear God, that you would anoint them. We pray, dear Father, that our community would be better because they are here, that people would hear the gospel, people's lives would be changed, people who have committed their lives to you would grow in their uh, discipleship and in their development of Christ-like character in their lives because this family is here, supernaturally ordained them to be able to do the work of the ministry in this community and in this congregation. Holy Spirit, we are asking that you would do that, that you would empower them beyond the limitations of themselves, that you would empower them beyond the limitations of their own knowledge and skills and abilities, and that supernaturally they would be able to minister in this congregation and in this community. Bless them, Father, we pray in your name. Amen. 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 Bless you guys. We are glad you are here. Thanks for being a part of this thing. So we want to kind of continue on in this series of, about being connected, and we want to go to a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul that is uh, not as often read as some of his others. I think part of the reason for that is that it doesn't outline as well. Oh, I forgot middle school. I got all excited about what I was doing. <laughs> Kylie's over there. She's trying to get the middle school kids' attention. If you are in middle school, you're headed that direction. Meet with Kylie. You're headed out and off over to the Hull Center. So bless you guys as you take off see ya. Man, there's a bunch of them. We need to invite more adults to come to church. Now all the kids all left. We got space now. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I'm glad they're going. Where was I? Oh yeah, Second Corinthians. So we're going to read through some things in 2 Corinthians. As I said, not as often read as some others. I, I think part of that is because uh, Bible teachers are notorious outliners. Uh, so they tend to take material and they outline it into little categories and subcategories. and you know, and they, they do all these diagrams and do sentences and stuff. And 2 Corinthians doesn't break down that way. Uh, It is much more of a a personal kind of response from the Apostle Paul to some of the things that he's been going through. Uh, There are some very deep personal uh, responses that are listed here and are explained here. And so because of that, it doesn't tend to be talked about as much as some of the others. But we want to go there. One of the reasons we wanna go there is because I think uh, for many of us, we have a picture of the Apostle Paul in our mind that is kind of like the hero in all of the great American Western novels. That, this, that the Apostle Paul is this rugged individual, you know, he gets on his horse, he's got his big hat, he's got his gun on his side, he, he's riding off into the sunset to go preach the gospel in the next town, and everywhere he goes there's opposition, and there's, he gets thrown in jail, he gets beaten up, he gets beaten up and thrown in jail, I mean, it's, all this stuff is going on, and that he's kind of this rugged individual, and we kind of have this kind of American West view of the Apostle Paul. Uh, the, the problem with that is that that's not really who he is. Uh, it's not how he lives his life, uh, but, but we, we, get, we get that kind of distorted picture of him. For the Apostle Paul, the things that were deep in him were not only his call to be an apostle, and that's the picture that we most often respond to. But the other part that we see when we hear from his heart and we see his passions is this part of him that is so desirous of relationships. He wants to be connected with people. He laments when relationships are broken. He struggles over friendships that are strained or difficult. And that's a part of his his life. one of the ways that I, I remember it was kind of first brought to my attention that maybe I had this kind of Americanized view of Paul was when somebody asked me, who wrote the book of First Thessalonians? So some of you know the New Testament, you know, kind of you've read through that. So if I were to ask you who wrote the book of First Thessalonians, the answer would typically be, See, you're all freaked out. It's like middle school all over again. I don't want to say the wrong answer in class. I don't want to be embarrassed. You know? Yeah. So, so it's 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 sort of a trick question, but not really. Yeah. The, the typical answer: Who wrote the book of First Thessalonians? We say Paul. If you read the opening line of First Thessalonians, it says Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. He didn't write it by himself. Now, I'm sure that the Apostle Paul probably had more influence over the content of that letter than anyone else. Like most of his letters, uh, they were typically dictated to a secretary who would be taking down that letter and would be sending it. Paul at the end in his own hand, several times he notes that in the New Testament, he would scribble out a little note and he would sign it and he would say, hey, if you get a letter and it doesn't have this signature, it's not really from me. And so he would have that part at the end. But 1 Thessalonians was not just written by Paul. It was written by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul was living together in community with these guys. One of the great struggles in Paul's life is what happens in his relationship with the church in Corinth, and that's why the letter that we know as 2 Corinthians has so much personal kind of content in it. It's because it, it started with some people who came in, who decided that the Apostle Paul was not all that good a teacher and that what he had taught them needed to be improved. By improved, they said that it needed to be more Greek-like. The same way we would often take the gospel and say, well, I'd like the gospel to be a little more American. You know, there's some things in here about personal sacrifice. There's some things in here about simplicity. There's some things in here about denying yourself. I'm not really interested in that. I'm I'm really kind of interested in living out the American dream, getting as much stuff as I can, basically being kind of a selfish person that people sort of get along with. But, you know, I, I just kind of want to be about me. And I'd like the gospel to be changed so that it endorses the lifestyle that I prefer. And that's what had happened in the church in Corinth. Some people came in and said, we prefer this lifestyle, what we've gotten used to in Greek culture. And Paul is preaching this gospel, and it kind of messes with our preferred lifestyle. And we'd like to kind of work our way back from that. And one of the things that really brought this to a head was one of the deacons is sleeping with his stepmom. And Paul's going, you know, even the pagans think that's weird. What are, what are you people doing? But it was all part of their Greek culture that said, you know, the stuff you can touch, even like your own body, that's all icky stuff. That's all icky stuff. The spiritual stuff is all ethereal. It's lights and angels, and it's not really physical, and that's where all the good stuff is. So if you're like a Christian in your spirit somewhere, but you're sinning with your body, it doesn't really matter. Because the body doesn't count. That was very Greek philosophy. And they're trying to say, let's change the gospel that Paul brought into one we like better. In John, in one of his letters, those little tiny letters at the end of the New Testament, in one of those letters, he said, we wanted to do some things while we were there, but we couldn't. We We were kind of resisted by a guy by the name of Diotrephes. And he said, because he desired to be first. You ever been around somebody who desired to be first? That no matter what you were talking about, they had a better story than the one you just heard? They were constantly one-upping everybody in the room. And when the group was trying to make a decision, they were insistent that the decision that was made was the one they wanted made. As long as we're going where I want to go and doing what I want to do, I think the whole group ought to go along with it because I desire to be first. You ever know anybody like that? Some people had moved into the church in Corinth and they desired to be first. And they begin to bring accusations against Paul. Some of them were pretty personal and pretty petty. I mean, one of the things they said about Paul, he's not much to look at. <laughs> not much to look at. In his letter to the Thessalonians, he talks about this eye condition that he has and that it's uncomfortable for other people. And he doesn't describe it in medical terms. We don't know what it was. But but the people in Corinth had kind of picked up on that. "Ah, You know, all that good looking, you know. I I don't know. (laughs) And then they said, you know what? He doesn't talk all that well. He doesn't talk all that well. I mean, you know, the stuff that he says is, 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 is pretty good. I mean, you know, the content's not all that bad. But he mispronounces some of the words. His grammar's not all that good. And these were people who were experts at talking. I mean, they would gather together in what they called the agora or the marketplace. And these philosophers, traveling philosophers, would stand up to get paid to say whatever it was they thought they, they needed to say. And they'd have competitions between each other. One guy would get up and he'd wax eloquent about something. And then the next guy would get up and he'd say something and he'd go, oh, let me refute what that other guy just said. And then these people were used to listening to these people. They, they, they you could even get a degree in talking. <laughs> you could get a degree in talking. And and so Paul is is, is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, I I wanted to send a letter to all of my Christian friends, but I couldn't. I had to write to you as if you were merely human. And I know that you're merely human because you have all these divisions. And he said, some of you are going, well, I'm, I'm following Paul. Paul's the guy that founded this church. He's the one that brought the gospel to Corinth. He's the guy. He's my guy. I'm fine. Yeah, I know. He doesn't look all that good. He doesn't talk all that, but I'm with him. And other people were going, no, 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 no. I'm with Apollos. Apollos was a lawyer who had come to Christian faith in Egypt and was now traveling as a Christian teacher. What, when it says that he was a lawyer, he actually had a degree in what was known as rhetoric. He had a PhD in talking. That's what the guy had. And so some of them were going, "Now, nah, you know, that Paul, he doesn't look good. He kind of stumbles over his words. I'm not that excited about him. But this Apollos guy, he's polished. He's got a PhD in talking. I'm I'm that's my guy. I'm going to follow him. And then I love this group. We just follow Jesus. We're just so spiritual. We have we 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 don't need teachers. We don't need Paul, we don't need a Pauls. We just follow Jesus. Bless your heart. <laughs> yeah. Paul's gone. What is going? What's happened? A group of people who want to be first have come and spread discord. And they have especially worked against Paul because of the authority that he carried in the church as the one who had founded it, as the one who was appointed by God as the apostle and they're trying to take away his influence. And so it's been a tough tough time. Paul writes a letter that we don't have a copy of. There are three letters that we know of that were written. We have the second and the third of the three letters that we know as 1st and 2nd Corinthians. There was a previous letter. And Paul had written a letter And that had started some of the struggle where Paul's going, no, we don't get to change the gospel. We need to do this. He sends this letter. He gets a report back from some people from the household of Chloe, he says. And we don't know anything about them other than they are taking these letters back and forth. Because Paul is in Ephesus. So some of you, you all have a map of the Middle East in your minds, don't you? You can see all of these things in your head, Right. Okay, for the sake of you that don't have that map in your head, this is Ephesus over here. It's on the southwest coast of Turkey. There, then you have the Aegean Sea, and on this side you have Greece. And the port on the other side, opposite of Ephesus is the port of Corinth. So you have Ephesus, which is in Turkey. Paul will call it Asia. Corinth, is in Macedonia, we would call it Greece, and it's the port on the other side. And so these letters are going back and forth, probably via ship between one town and the other. Paul is in Ephesus. He's heard about what's going on in Corinth. He's going, oh my gosh, we have got problems. We got to take care of. Letters are going back and forth. He wants to go visit them, but I think Paul knows himself and he's saying, you know what, if I go there now, I'm probably going to start throwing hammers you know, because I've never seen Paul back away from a a disturbance, right? Paul is not cowardly. He is not not timid in any way. And he's going, you know what? If I get involved in this situation, I'm just going to, I'm going to put the hammer down and we're going to deal with this thing. And rather than do that, he sends a letter. That doesn't work out too well. He sends Timothy. That doesn't work out too well. Timothy comes back and tells him, Paul, this thing is really getting out of hand. He writes another letter, sends that over The household of Chloe. comes back with the response from the church in Corinth because they're writing letters too and he's going oh my goodness the stuff I'm hearing that's not going to work out sends another letter then he sends Titus to try to go take care of it and somewhere along the line the crowd in Corinth some of them got upset and said well Paul said he was coming and then he changed his mind how can you trust a guy that can't even make up his own mind to tell you about eternity and so on and on the criticism goes finally Titus goes and Paul sitting over in Ephesus, frustrated with what's going on, can't take it anymore. He heads overland, up around, down into to Greece, and meets Titus on the way back from Corinth. And he gets an update from Titus on what's going on. And that's what we read in 2 Corinthians. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, let's just read through Paul's response. He's saying, Titus has come to him. He's gotten a good report about what's going on. And now he writes this letter to send ahead of him. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So again, that's what Paul calls it. Now we call it Turkey. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Look at that phrase. He despaired of life itself. What would we call that? Someone who is despairing of life itself. We would say that person is depressed. This is the, I have no strength to get up in the morning. I can't concentrate. I can't get my work done. I... I I'm not sure if I want to die or I'm afraid I'm going to die. Right? I despaired of life itself. Paul didn't have our terminology, but we would say he's clinically depressed. Why? Because of the pressure because of the broken relationship, because of the struggle that's happening in the church in Corinth, not to mention all the stuff he's facing in Ephesus with Alexander the coppersmith and the riots that are happening there. Paul's experiencing all of this and he's depressed. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here's Paul's answer. He's saying the gospel has power even over depression. He said, he delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And a couple chapters later in chapter seven, Paul circles back around to this personal description of what he had been going through. And in 2 Corinthians chapter seven, verse two, he says, Make room in your hearts for us. That has nothing to do with the accuracy of the gospel. It has nothing to do with understanding the Old Testament prophets. This is relational. This is the, I don't like being separated from the people I feel that I belong to. Make room for us in our hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts and to die together or to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. He's talking about that letter where he said, I I had to say some things. There was too much at stake. But I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. He goes on to describe what has changed for him. He says, for even when we came into Macedonia, remember he's in Ephesus, he's in Asia, he's going up and around the Aegean Sea, overland, he's coming down into what we know as Greek, Greece. When I came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, even there, we were afflicted at every turn. We were fighting without and we had fear within. He's saying the circumstances were difficult, but this was an internal struggle. I was struggling with what was happening. But God who comforts the downcast, might we say depressed? But God who comforts the downcast, comforted us, look at how, by the coming of Titus. And not just by his coming. In other words, not just I was by myself and my friend showed up and so now my friend is here and I feel better. He said it wasn't just that. He was glad to see Titus, but it wasn't just that but it was also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that we rejoice still more. It's the renewing of relationship with the church in Corinth that is bringing him encouragement and comfort. It's coming from his friend and he enjoys seeing Titus, but it's what he hears from Titus that blesses him most. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Do you understand that struggle? He's saying, you're my friends. I care about you dearly. I hated the fact that I had to write this letter to confront you, but I needed to confront you because of what was at stake. You're too important for me not to say something. I mean, honestly, as much as we don't like it at the time, aren't you glad you have some friends that tell you what you need to hear? And Paul's saying, I didn't want to write the hard letter and I regretted it, but now I don't regret it. Well, I don't regret it because it led to change. You looked at it and went, Yeah, he's right. And you made changes. I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Positive change came out of this. You didn't just read my letter and go, well, who's that fooey old Paul to tell us how to live and what to do? I'm not going to listen to his letter, and he can't tell me. I'm just going to keep doing what I... He said, No. You took the letter and it was hard, but you read it and you got it and you changed what you were doing. You felt godly grief. And so you suffered no loss through us. Why? Because godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That's what you get when the devil gets in your face and says, hey, you're such a loser. You've made another mistake. It's just like all the other mistakes you've made. You're going to keep making mistakes for the rest of your life. You're worthless. You might as well quit and give up now. He says, that's worldly grief. That condemnation. Very different from when the Holy Spirit comes and says, hey, really proud of where you are and what you've done and the ways that you've changed. But you know what, Weber? This place in your life needs to be fixed. This isn't adequate anymore. It's time for you to grow up past this. You know, this thing that you've been excusing, this thing you've been letting yourself get away with, Mm, no more. We're going to stop that now. We're going to stop that now. The Holy Spirit doesn't condemn you. He brings up an issue and he gets it fixed. Paul brought up an issue and they didn't take it as condemnation. They took it as direction for change and they repented and did better. Paul's saying, that's a good thing. That's a good process. He says, we see what eagerness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Look at that sentence. Paul said, I wrote that letter and I dealt with a very specific issue. Everybody knew who that guy was who was living with his stepmom. Everybody knew. And he said, I didn't write for his sake. I didn't write for her sake. I didn't write because of how it brought confusion into their family. I wrote that so that you and I could get back on the same page. He said it was more important to me to restore the relationship than it was even to fix the problem. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Yes, it is. Agree with Didi. It was a powerful statement. I, I think as you read these passages, you can, you can feel with me the anguish that Paul felt and, and the, the very real threat that he experienced from being disconnected from the people that he loved. Because certainly the upside of being involved in a Christian community is the absolute assurance of the aid and affection of fellow believers. But the downside of that same fellowship is the pain that is caused when somebody within the family or within that group corrupts that love and corrupts those relationships through selfishness and either exploits the love or exploits the commitment of other people because of their selfishness those people who would choose to abandon their commitments. It's for that reason that there are so many verses about the importance of showing up and getting along, about loving, about forgiving, about encouraging, about not letting the accuser of the brethren gain a foothold in our hearts and minds through a lack of love and a lack of forgiveness. It's wrapped up well in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Look at what Paul says to the church there. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Remember, we talked about that last week, what it meant to be members of one by. Remember that? Did anybody need me to re- redo that here, uh, the whole sermon from last week? No, you can see it online. Okay. We are members of one another. He says, be angry. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. We we talked about it a few weeks ago. The Spanish word for Satan, for the devil, is diablo. The reason that the Spanish chose that word when they were trying to find a name for Satan is because he is the accuser of the brethren and the word in Spanish has its roots in the idea of being an accuser or of giving accusations. And so they named Satan Diablo because he is the one who accuses people. The word that's used here, that, that in this translation says "opportunity," I don't remember what it says in some of the other English translations, is actually kind of a military concept, and it has to do with a foothold or a beachhead. So, some of you, some of you, remember. <laughs> World War II, vaguely, some of you, uh, most of that generation is kind of passing along. Some of you watched Saving Private Ryan, that's the closest thing you know, or you watched Band of Brothers on Netflix, you know a little bit about World War II and that whole D-Day thing and landing there. The reason that that was so important was because up till that point in World War II, the two sides were just flying over top of each other, dropping bombs on each other's heads and nobody was really getting anywhere. And we knew that if we could just get a foothold, an opportunity, a beachhead, if we could get a place on the continent of Europe where we could bring in men and materials, we could win that war. That's what changed everything. That beach became a harbor, which became a place where we could stage from. We were no longer just flying over, dropping bombs on each other's heads. We were now on the ground. The concept here is that we are going to hear from Satan, but we need to hear from him from over there instead of from in here. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is going to tell you things about yourself, and he's going to tell you things about the people in the room, and we need him to be saying it from over there, not from in here. And there's a reason for that. When he's speaking from over there, he sounds like himself. When he's speaking from in here, he sounds like you. It's familiar. It's what you're used to. He's now got a beachhead in your head, and he is talking to you, but it sounds like you. So let me ask you this. Do you have any wrong opinions? Do you have any wrong opinions? I mean, you have opinions about everything. Do you have any wrong opinions? No, you don't have any wrong opinions. If you had a wrong opinion, you'd change it, and then you'd be right again. (laughs) You don't have wrong opinions. I say that sometimes, and people get all freaked out. I tell them, I don't have any wrong opinions. All of my opinions are correct. And they go, well, that's just arrogant. I said, you're exactly the same as me. You think all of your opinions are correct. That's why you have them. If you, I mean, how many people are gonna, I know this is wrong, but I'm gonna make it my opinion anyway. You don't do that. You're convinced that all of your opinions are correct about everything, even things you don't know anything about. You're convinced all of your opinions are correct. Do you see the danger of what it's like to have the accuser of the brethren start sounding like your own opinions? you're suddenly going to believe that he's correct because it sounds like you. If he's over there, it sounds like him. And you can go, Satan, get away from me. I don't want to hear your opinion about me. I don't want to hear your opinion about Dave. I don't want to hear your opinion about Didi. It doesn't make any difference what you think. You're a liar, the father of all lies. You're the accuser of the brethren. But when I, through resentment or my anger or my bitterness or my immaturity or whatever it is, allow him a beachhead, now it sounds like, well, that's my opinion of Dave, and My opinions are all correct. And suddenly I'm agreeing with the accuser of the brethren because it sounds like me. Paul says, give no opportunity, foothold, beachhead to the devil. He gives some other practical advice. He says, well, if you used to be a thief, stop that. Go get a real job. Do honest work with your own hands so that you'll have something to share with anyone in need. We've all done that, right? We looked at somebody and said, if they spent half as much time working on a real job as they do try to be a criminal, they'd be a millionaire, right? I mean, we, and Paul's saying that to these thieves. He's saying, hey, if that's how you made your living in the past, stop it. Get a real job. Be charitable. Share with other people. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. <laughs> that opinion that Diablo puts in your head that now has to be expressed because you're always right. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that may give grace to those who hear. What is grace? Grace is what you need and don't deserve. He said, when you speak, you should be giving people what they need, not what they deserve. That was good. Yeah, okay. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice why cuz that's what the diablo does be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you you see we all need this community of people in our life what my son calls his tribe we need a group of people who have simply chosen to do life together that choice is not based on the fact that everyone agrees on everything but they have agreed to be there for one another. You're not going to agree on everything, but you do agree to be there for one another. Nobody in the group is trying to sell the group anything. (laughs) We've all experienced that, right? hey, I got this wonderful thing for you and you should buy this. And by the way, not only should you buy this, but you should sign up so that you can sell it too. And then you just let me know how much of it you want and I will get it for you. And you and I'll both be rich. (laughs) Don't treat your tribe like that. (laughs) Nobody's trying to sell the group anything. Nobody's trying to control the group. Nobody's saying I have to be first. My opinion has to win. The way I want to do it is the way it has to be done. Nobody's saying that. Nobody has to control the group. They've just chosen to submit to one another, to show up and to behave when they get there. And everyone in the group has permission to need the group to help them through tough stuff. But nobody in the group gets to be the needy person every time. Hmm? think about that. If you have a tribe, if you have a group, if you have a care group, if you are involved in a group of friends, if you, what, you have the right to come into that group, if this group is truly committed to each other, and say, this just blew up in my life. This just went sideways. I just got this diagnosis. I just got this news. My kid just did this. You have the right to walk into that group and say, man, I'm beat up. <laughs> I need some help. You just don't have the right to be that person every time the group gets together. If you have experienced some sort of brokenness that is a part of your life every day continually, you need Jesus to heal you from that so you can be a part of a group. You cannot be going to the group and sucking from them all of the kind of help that you think you need to get through the day When that help's got to come from Jesus, you cannot impose that brokenness on them. Mutuality is not consuming other people to address the brokenness in your life that Jesus needs to heal. You let Jesus heal the brokenness. You join the group and you say, hey, today's my tough day. And tomorrow is your tough day. And that's the time for me to shut up and pray for you. It's not about me every time we get together. There's mutuality. Proverbs makes this observation. Proverbs is the book that is not the book of promises. This is not the way things always are. This is not magic formulas. This is the way things generally are, and they are the way things should be. So the most famous proverb in the world is, where there is smoke, there is fire. That proverb, not even in the Bible, That proverb is the most well-known proverb in the world. It it comes out of almost every language group on the planet. Hey, where there's smoke, there's fire. Except when there's smoke and there isn't fire. And then it's not. Because sometimes you get smoke and it's not really a fire. It's just smoking. Just smoke, no fire, just smoke. Proverbs are the way things normally are. They're the way we would like them to be. Not the way they always are going to be. And so in Proverbs chapter 27, the author of Proverbs makes this observation. He says, do not forsake your friend or your father's friend. Do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. It is better to have a neighbor or a friend who is near than it is to have a brother who is far away. So there's a couple things that come out of this verse. First is this idea of heritage. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the other is talking about not abandoning the friends and the relationships and the people that are close in your life friendship involves this mutual commitment to be there for one another as we said it doesn't imply matching it does not imply even equal investment it's just a sense of mutuality when a group of friends get together not everybody can invest the same into the group When the group gets together, quite often you meet at somebody's house because somebody has a bigger house than everybody else in the group. You can't expect, well, if you're going to be a part of our group, you have to have a house that has a minimum square footage of. (laughs) You don't do those kinds of things. You just say, hey, these people got lucky. They inherited it. They worked hard and earned it. Whatever it is, they got this house. It works. We're all going to meet over there. And not everybody has to provide a place for us to meet. We don't have to all be equal. We don't have to all make the same investment. And when we get together, you know what? That person over there tends to talk to us about Bible verses because they know more about them than anybody else. And when the group decides they want to sing a song, we let that person lead. And we do that on purpose because we don't want that guy over there leading the song. In fact, we're not even sure we want him to sing at all. We would prefer that he probably sat in the back and just hummed quietly while the rest of us sang because this guy is no good at that at all. It's the idea of coming together in community and having a tribe doesn't mean that everybody brings the same thing to the table, that everybody's equal, or even that everybody can make the same investment. That's why when our group gets together and we have these wonderful potluck meals, Jeanette and I bring bread. That's what we do. (laughs) Because there's some other people that bring a lot of other things. And we bring bread. That's what we bring. Oh, we bring baked beans too. We're good at those. We're really good at that. And macaroni salad. We're good at that too. We're just not all the same. Not everybody's expected to make the same investment in the group. But everybody's expected to be there. And to be vested in the group when we get together. This mutuality. This idea that says we're not all equal, but everybody can contribute. Doesn't mean that all the parties are as, it it, it does mean, I mean that all the parties are as committed to the group as every other person in the group. And that they've decided that friendship is not an optional event, that it is in fact a committed relationship. And the second idea is this idea of the heritage of friendship. Not only are we instructed not to abandon our friends, we are to give honor to the friends of our father, it it speaks of this generational connectedness. And I realize that some of you don't have that. You don't have generations of people that you're connected to. Your, Your family hasn't connected across generational lines with other people. Some of you have the blessing of that. But I will tell you, if you do not have that kind of heritage, you can create it. You can decide that it starts with you. You can make that happen. Because of the structure of the family that I came out of, our, our family kind of sat off to the side. We, we, we didn't live where the bulk of the rest of the family, on both my mom's side and my dad's side, the bulk of them lived someplace else. Most of them were engaged in careers that were different from ours. A, a lot of the family were alcoholics slash loggers. Uh, and not that loggers are alcoholics or that alcoholics are loggers, it's just that's kind of what they were. and. Uh, our family had taken a different path and was kind of on a different walk. And so the people that became my heritage were friends. They weren't the people that I was necessarily related to by birth. They were friends. My family began to create a different heritage. And when Jeanette and I put our family together, her family was from one state and my family was from another. And we got together and then God said, I need you to go here and I want you to work in this community. And it was separate from most of our family. And so friends became heritage for us. And so I'll tell you that at my, my youngest son's wedding, uh, a guy by the name of Fred Hull, he was in first service. He is close to the age of my father. Fred Hull was in my youngest son's wedding as one of the groomsmen. Why? Because that family became part of our family's heritage. We chose to do life together. We chose to be there for each other. And I'll tell you that in some aspects, I didn't have much to contribute. Fred's one of those guys that's got at least three of everything. You know, there's the original one that he got. And then there was the new one they came out with that was better than the one that he already had. And then there was the backup that was better than the other. You get it? He's one of those guys. He's got all the stuff. Fred has never borrowed a tool from me in my life. I have borrowed tools from him continually. (laughs) We don't bring the same thing to the relationship, but we're both committed to each other. And that became a heritage that Proverbs says, don't abandon your friend. Don't abandon the friend of your father. Because I need you to know that it's better off to have a friend next door than it is to have a brother far away which loops us all the way back to this concept that we talked about last week. And that is the next time something goes sideways in your life, who are your people and where are they going to be? Do you know who they are? Do you have a tribe of people to whom you are committed? Not because you all agree, not because you all vote the same, not because you all drive the same kind of car, not because you all have the same lifestyle and you all have a garden in the backyard. Not, no, no, Who are the people you've just said we're going to be here for each other because together is better than alone. And when things go sideways, I know those people are there for me and those people know that I'm there for them. And somehow that guy's grandpa ends up in your kid's wedding because you're together. It's just the way it works. Do you know who those people are? Have you found those connections? And are you willing to do the work necessary? Because let's face it, relationships take time, and they take effort. I I remember when it dawned on me how hard my friends were having to work. I mean, there was a long time when I thought it was a pretty cool deal to be my friend. I thought, you know, lucky you. We're friends. (laughs) You know? I'm a pretty nice guy. I can usually hold my own in most conversations. I I have intelligent insights. I'm fairly well-read. So what do you want to talk about? I'd be glad to talk with you about, we can have stimulating conversations. It's going to be a great thing. It's good that you're my friend. And I woke up one day and realized just how much work it was to be my friend. What these people were having to put up with. The fact that my ideas didn't sound near as clever to them as they did to me. That my opinions weren't nearly as well formed as I thought they were. And that there were a lot of people that knew a lot more about a lot of things than I did. And they probably were just putting up with my silly ideas while I thought we were having a stimulating conversation. (laughs) So I will simply tell you, if you haven't figured out how hard it is for people to be your friend, just keep breathing. It will dawn on you one day. And you'll be going back and apologizing to people saying, oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you for being my friend. I know that was a lot of work. <laughs> it's just going to happen. Are you willing to do the work necessary? To have friends, to be a friend, to be in a tribe, to have a group of people that you're committed to, not because you all agree. In fact, part of the fun's going to be the fact that you don't agree and you're going to figure out how to be nice about it and not arrogant and mean and domineering. It's going to be good for you. You're going to be better because of it. That's how Paul lived his life, and when he lost it, it sent him toward depression, and God delivered him from that and restored those relationships. He's calling us to live that same kind of life. So, Jesus, we want to say thank you that you chose to be our friends. You specifically said that. You got your disciples together and said, I am calling you friends. You deliberately chose to be our friend. And talk about a one-sided conversation. How many times have we tried to tell the creator of the universe what he ought to do? And how silly must that sound to you? And yet you call us friends. Thank you for doing that. May we accept the challenge that you gave us to love one another like you loved us. (laughs) Thank you for loving us that way. Help us to love that way in return. In your name we pray, Amen. amen, amen. Go be a light in a dark place.